What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Thomas Chandler, your local Modern Woodman representative. Give me a call today at 662-296-0186. Let's make a difference together. Hotty toddy and go Rebs. You're listening to Talk of Champions, an Ole Miss Spirit podcast with Ben Garrett. It's up, it's up, it's up, it's up, it's up. This is Talk of Champions. I'm Ben Garrett at Spirit Ben on Twitter. The guest co-host today is Bennett Hip at Bennett Hip. And the guest is Nick Williams, former Ole Miss guard, now an assistant coach under Kermit Davis. Ole Miss taking on Alabama in the 7-10 game in the SEC tournament later today at 6 p.m. Central Time. If they advance, they'll take on Kentucky on Friday. Bennett, what's up, man? What you up to? Watching way too much college basketball. It's nice that you, uh, you come home at like six and there's just bat like really good basketball on every night this week. It's great. Like on uh like Monday night was the Walford game. That was really fun. It's just you know, I love the tournament, but I, I really think like conference tournament week might be a little bit even better than opening weekend of the tournament. There's just so many good games and just all hours of the day. Like I mentioned today's guest on Talk of Champions is Nick Williams also a Game of Thrones segment. I promised this to you guys, the mailbag, we weren't able to fit it in, but going to have it today with Maester Daniel. So if you want to go ahead and fast forward, fast forward an hour. Maester Daniel and I talk for like 30 or 40 minutes. The podcast brought to you by Thomas Chandler, your modern woodman representative. If you need help financially, contact Thomas today. He'll help you with retirement, savings, getting your financials in order. He's done it for me. He can do it for you. So what does modern woodman do? How about financial security for you and your family through life insurance, retirement planning, financial services? How about quality family life through member benefits and local fraternal activities? Community impact through local volunteer projects that make a difference where members live, work, and play. If your finances are bogging you down as they were for me, contact Thomas today. He's a personal friend. He's the one to talk to. 662-296-0186. 662-296-0186. To learn more, go to www.modernwoodman.org. That's www.modernwoodman.org. Thomas Chandler, your Modern Woodman representative. The podcast brought to you by Alan Samuels Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram of Oxford. 
The car buying process can be overwhelming. Believe me, I've been there, like recently. <laughs> You're just looking to get the best deal anyway, right? If that's the case, and to avoid the headache, head on over to Alan Samuels Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram of Oxford. They're going to take care of you and get you into your next vehicle with a great deal. Their inventory is priced to sell. And what separates Alan Samuels' is Brian and Mason and the rest of the staff aims to address each of your needs with the utmost respect, care, and attention to detail. Tell them Talk of Champions sent you. They're hardcore Ole Miss fans, so they'll probably want to talk some Ole Miss basketball, baseball, spring football practices. But more importantly, they'll want to make the process as seamless as possible and make sure you get what you want at a good price. Contact them today at 662-234-8000. Stop by and see them at 2201 East University Avenue in Oxford. That's just past Kroger. Alan Samuels Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram of Oxford to find your next perfect car, truck, or Jeep. Alan Samuels, let's be friends. I can't get a feel for this game at all. Ole Miss the seventh seed, Alabama the 10. Winner goes on to face Kentucky on Friday. Can't forget Ole Miss got blown out in Tuscaloosa in the only meeting between these teams this season. Make sense of this game for me. I think it's a poor matchup for Ole Miss, but I also think that this could be a spot where we actually get one of Ole Miss's better games because I think Alabama is going to come out pretty tight. I mean, they, they know that they have to win. And, you know, that that works in a good way sometimes. It works in a bad way sometimes. I don't think this Alabama team is particularly good. They're just not a great matchup for Ole Miss um, athletically and, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think Ole Miss comes out, plays loose. And I think there's a, a decent chance that we get – one of the better Ole Miss, Ole Miss performances of the season um, against this Alabama team. I mean, they, they have nothing to lose. You're already in the tournament at this point. You, you, you're kind of playing for seeding, but not really. I mean, they seem kind of locked in to that 8-9 seed line. So I, I think they come out pretty loose and, and play well. And uh, I think they I think they beat Alabama. And then I think they lose to Kentucky, but I think they beat Alabama. Um, I think it'll be a, a pretty close game, but – I think there's a pretty decent chance that Ole Miss kind of comes out and, and plays really well. Yeah, I expect to be going home on Friday. Yeah, I think, um, you know, th- that's just a, a bridge too too far. Um, you know, the, the the way the bracket, you know, broke out, um, you know, it's good that Ole Miss didn't need to make a run in Nashville because if you were going to have to rely on beating Kentucky, then obviously that's not going to work too well. You know, looking at the bracket, I'd be pretty surprised if Kentucky isn't taking home that trophy on Sunday afternoon. At the end of the day, it's a free shot. Ole Miss is going into the SEC tournament, not necessarily needing to do anything to punch his ticket for the NCAA tournament. And that in and of itself is an accomplishment, right? That's what winning at Missouri did for you. That's what it gave to you. And for this team, which has come so close so many times, could have 22, 23 wins on its resume. The fact that they have this free shot, it's well-deserved, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things where obviously I I think they would prefer to win Thursday just because, you know, it's a long time to sit out until selection Sunday, even though you're you're pretty safely in. But you win Thursday, um, you take your shot Friday, but you're also not going to push your guys. You're not going to play, you know, Tyree and and Terrence Davis 40 something minutes or anything like that. You're going to you're going to focus on getting home, getting healthy and, um, you know, going ahead and preparing for, for to go somewhere and. And to play a pretty winnable game, you know, the, the good thing about being a higher seed is you're going to have a game that, um, you know, those eight, nine games are, are, you know, pretty even teams. There's not going to be some huge mismatch um, that's not in Ole Miss's favor. So um, I, I think they'll come out and play hard Thursday. But at that point, anything more than that is gravy. And I think there's part of Kermit Davis that would love to just go ahead and get back home and, and rest up and, and be healthy. 
we're kind of burying the lead here, but on Tuesday, Kermit Davis was named the SEC Coach of the Year by the AP, as well as the SEC. Brian Tyree, a second-team All-SEC selection by the AP, while Brian and Terrence Davis were both All-SEC selections to the SEC, including Brian being first-team. For Kermit Davis, it's his award, with Will Wade removed from the candidates' pool after all the FBI wiretap report stuff from Yahoo!, I think he can make a clean sweep here. He deserves it. He deserves to be SEC Coach of the Year. The greatest turnaround in the SEC of any team is Ole Miss to be an NCAA tournament team after your preseason pick to finish 14th. With Will Wade not in the conversation, it's Kermit Davis's award in the landslide. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the group that you're that you were choosing from, um, it was Kermit, Will Wade before all this stuff went down, uh, Rip Barnes, Calipari, and Frank Martin. Frank Martin's not going to get it, even though he did a really good job. Their record's not very good overall. Um, Rip Barnes, you know, you could argue that they underachieved, and you know that would be, I guess, they'd be right. They were picked to win the league, but um, I think for him, they had to win at least the regular season for him to get that. And um, so it wasn't going to be him. I, I think Cal is always a tough deal because I think people look at all the talent and say, "Well, you're supposed to be good." But I, I think if you go back and watch uh, Kentucky early in the season, they didn't look like a team that was going to be a national title contender and, and Cal's kind of figured out, um, got those young guards playing well to the point that they are a, a legitimate national you know, title contender at this point. So I, I thought if it wasn't going to be Kermit, it would be Cal. Um, but I definitely think that Kermit was the right choice. And I'll be pretty surprised if he's not the pick for every publication that, that does um, coach of the year stuff, like you said. Surprised, though, that Brian Tyree wasn't first team All-SEC? For the AP, I mean, because he was first team according to the SEC, but the AP had him as second team. A little bit. He would have been on mine, but you, you look at all the guards in this league, man. It's 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 tough. You, you know, you're you're kind of picking and choosing from small differences. I, I think we all knew that Tremont Waters was going to be a first team All SEC guard, and so at that point, you're picking from Q Weatherspoon, Jordan Bone, Tyree, uh, Jared Harper at Auburn, those guys like that, and so. I think uh, Brian would have been it for me. What he's done for this Ole Miss team has been huge, and he's carried a, a pretty huge load offensively that you know some other guys haven't had to do because they have better players around them, you know, roster-wise. But uh, Q's numbers have been really good. They're they're pretty comparable to Brian. So I, I thought Brian should have been first team, but it, it's kind of hard to get too upset over it, knowing you know how good the rest of the guards in this league are. So it, it's still a really good season for him and. Um, he'll have a chance to come back and, and be a first-team guy as a senior. So I, I would expect him to be right in that mix again. I think he was snubbed. He's the only player in the SEC to rank in the conference's top 10 in scoring. He's second uh, with a little over 18 points per game. Free throw percentage, field goal percentage, three-pointers made. And then if you turn on the tape, who's the guy taking all the late-game shots? I know that the late-game free throws have been a problem lately, but he's taking all the late-game shots. almost doesn't come back. At Missouri, uh, I, I just I think he was snubbed. That's my that, yeah. I, I think don't think tough. I don't think you can I mean, leave that kid out looking at the numbers and then having the greatest turnaround of any team in the SEC and the AP SEC Coach of the Year and not have him first team. Yeah, I think it's tough. So I, I would be interested to see how the vote split out because I would imagine the vote between Q and and Brian was was really close. So because um, if you look at the two, I, I think the if you're voting for Q, you're looking at. You know, pretty similar numbers to Brian, uh, a pretty good defender at his size, and a guy that's been around the league. He's a senior this year. He's been around. Media knows him, and he's a he's a guy on a, a pretty you know pretty good team that's been a lock for the tournament for a few weeks now. 
as opposed to Ole Miss that, that just kind of sealed their bid on, on Saturday. So I, I totally get it. Uh, I don't think you're wrong at all to say that he deserved first team, but I would imagine that the vote breakdown between those two w- was pretty close. I don't, I don't think, uh, I think he certainly got some votes. So uh, it, it's tough for sure, but it's the, you know, the, the thing about this league now is that there are so many good guys, especially on the perimeter. It's why, it's why Ole Miss having the trio of guards that they do was able to have this turnaround. You know, if you have big men, like, you know, Georgia has pretty good big men and they were not very good. But if you have really good guards in this league, you can win. And um, a lot of teams do. So Brian's first team, all SEC, according to the SEC, his second team, according to the AP, sneaky candidate for SEC player of the year going into next year. I mean, I, I think it, you you look at first team, all SEC, uh, Gafford's going to go pro PJ Washington, probably going pro Tremont waters will probably be back. I mean, he's a, sub six foot point guard i don't know that he'll but we'll see what happens at lsu maybe he decides to bounce or go somewhere else or go that's the wild card and all that for all those guys because lsu absolutely you know filled up with nba players and and then obviously you look at grant williams you know he he won player of the year again he's fantastic uh but he's a junior and you just kind of wondered is he already done like you know he's accomplished so much in college is it really worth it to come back he feels like he's got a malcolm brogdon type of trajectory I agree. yeah i'm kind of fascinated to see what he does because he's a six seven guy's undersized gonna play the four probably uh you know the nba is he's not doesn't have those measurables but he's also a guy that he's not his game isn't going to change very much so he's he, not he a prolific three-point shooter or anything like that no no he, he's not some sort of you know three and d guy or anything like that so his game is going to be uh, not a great fit for the league, no matter what. So he has to decide whether he wants to come out, maybe play in the G League or go overseas where he can make a, a, a good amount of money for a guy as skilled as he is. Or does he just say, you know what, I'll come come back again and try to run it back with Tennessee one more time. So I, I think that will be uh, – I think if he comes back, obviously he'll be the favorite. But outside of that, I, I think Brian will be right up there. You know, it's going to be – uh, expectations are going to be a lot higher for Ole Miss next time around, and, and he'll have a lot more attention on him. So uh, I think Grant and, and Brian will be right up there again. Does Brian have NBA potential? I don't see it. Yeah. I, I, this is the debate that I've had all kinds of times this year with many Ole Miss fans to where they'll say Terrence Davis gets all this pub as an NBA player, but Brian's this, this. It's hard to explain projectability. Well, and Terrence Davis wrong. still has they're, that. They're not wrong. Like Brian is yeah. a better player than than Terrence has been right now. Yeah. But but the NBA is so much about fitting into their mold and measurables. And if you look at Terrence Davis from a size and athleticism standpoint, he fits what the NBA theoretically likes to do. That's a league that is always looking for guys that can shoot and play defense on the wing. And Terrence has not shot consistently from three. He's not defended consistently, but he has the tools to do so. You look at Brian, he can shoot, he can score. He does a lot of his work in the mid range though. And that's a shot that's becoming less and less of a popular thing at the NBA level. And he doesn't have elite size, but he is super athletic. So do I think he's an NBA guy? No. Uh, Do I think he'd probably get some workouts just because he's athletic and there'll be local teams, the Grizzlies, the Hawks, guys like that that want him to come in and work out against guys? Absolutely. You know, end of the day, my guess is he goes and plays overseas somewhere and makes a lot of money because he's really good. Uh, Yeah, he's undersized, this, this, and this, but he's supremely athletic, really good player, can do a lot of damage on, you know, scoring from every level. So, 
I don't think he's an NBA guy, but I think he's a guy that's going to go overseas and and like a lot of Ole Miss guys that have done the last few years, go over there and, and make a make a good money and make a good living for themselves. He could get a G League invite, and I think he'd be good there. But most of his game comes in the mid range and in the NBA that's completely disappeared. And if you don't have size, elite size at guard, even lead guards and two guards, it's hard to to make your way. I mean, Brian's listed at what six three. I don't think yeah. he's 6'3", he's like 6'2". Terrence Davis has the profile of the NBA body, and when NBA scouts watch him play and they see like the dunk at Missouri where he goes up and over Tillman and with an arm draped over his face still gets the dunk in, they think they can channel that, bottle that up, and get more consistent production out of Terrence Davis. Every pro scout evaluator across any sport believes that they can tap into what makes the profiled player great. And Terrence Davis, while inconsistent in his sophomore or excuse me, his junior and senior seasons at Ole Miss, NBA scouts will look at him and think they can tap into what made him so good. And what makes him so good? Well, when he's engaged rebounding on the defensive end, when he's engaged as getting his hands in passing lanes and getting steals, fast break, he's dominant. When he's not relying on the three-point shot, though, he can make threes. They feel like they can turn that into an NBA player because his body and his projectability, Brian Tyree doesn't have that. And that's the right. one thing that'll hold him back. So when you look at Ole Miss's roster and you see Brian Tyree getting second-team All-SEC and Terrence Davidson out there, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, but Brian did this, this, and this on paper – well, it's different. It's different SEC college production and what the NBA believes it can turn Terrence Davis into, and that's why he has the different projectable NBA draft profile. Right. You know, the, the NBA will turn on the game tape from the Kentucky game a couple weeks ago, and they'll see you know, that was probably Terrence's best game. 12 of rebounds, senior season. 25 12 points. rebounds, shot it well, played defense well, like he was locked in. You know, They'll look at that. And, and combine that with what he, you know, what he brings to the table in terms of size and physicality and athleticism, and they can say, you know what, you know, maybe maybe he's not a drafted drafted guy, but he's an undrafted guy that comes to camp, goes to the G League, something like that, goes on a two way deal, something like that, and they can make it work because they'll see you'll see everything on that tape and combine it with his profile and size and all that kind of stuff, and they can see a role for him. It's harder for them. While Brian's really good and really successful, it's harder for them to look at him and, and find a role for him. And the NBA is all about finding a role, finding something that you can do. And, you know, there are a lot of really good college players that just don't translate to the NBA. And that's no knock on them. It's just how the way the league is now. Everything is bigger, um, longer, you know, based on athleticism and size. And so if you're a guy like Brian, you go overseas somewhere instead and make a good living for yourself. Um, while a guy like Terrence has a shot because of what he brings to the table and his size and everything else. So it's um, not ideal, I guess, but it's just kind of way the NBA is going now. This is Talk of Champions. I've been Garrett at Spirit Bit on Twitter. He's Bennett Hip at Bennett Hip. Today's guest on Talk of Champions is Nick Williams, former Ole Miss guard, now an assistant with Kermit Davis on the Ole Miss basketball staff. What does he think about Ole Miss's run, about the NCAA tournament, about the SEC tournament, and everything in between? It's Nick Williams joining us on the Cheney's Pharmacy phone line. For all your pharmaceutical needs, Cheney's Pharmacy is the place to go. Cheney's offers prescription synchronization, immunizations, compounding, a two-lane drive-through, and available hours that ensure your needs are met on your own time. Cheney's also accepts all third-party insurance. It's a locally-owned pharmacy that has been in Oxford over 40 years. At Cheney's Pharmacy, you get the best customer service out there. So give Cheney's a call, 662-234-7221, 662-234-7221, or go visit them at 501 Bramlett Boulevard. That's right off of University Avenue. They're open 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Monday through Saturday. 
and 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. on Sundays. You can find them online, ChaneysPharmacy.com. Cheney's Pharmacy, much more than just a pharmacy. Joining me now on the Cheney's Pharmacy phone line is former Ole Miss guard, now Ole Miss basketball assistant Nick Williams, my buddy, my friend. Ole Miss likely punched its ticket to the NCAA tournament with its win at Missouri on Saturday. SEC tournament happening right now. Ole Miss takes on Alabama in the 7-10 matchup later today. Nick, what's the vibe right now, man? How's everybody doing? Um, I mean, everybody's obviously we're still on edge, you know, because we still we still feel like we got a lot of work to do with this tournament, this SEC tournament coming up. Um, but I mean, guys were excited that we got a we got a much needed win, and we we lost three straight. So you know, the game Saturday we felt like it was it was a must win, and uh, guys went out and played hard, and uh, we got the win. You're a part of the 2013 team that went into the SEC tournament, won the SEC tournament championship to punch your ticket to the NCAA tournament, while this team doesn't have to do anything necessarily in the SEC tournament. Looks like the bid is secure. It's a different world. It's a different vibe. So what's the approach like? What's the approach for this team compared to years past when Ole Miss had work to do in the SEC tournament? I, I know. I, I like how you said that, but uh, I think we're taking the approach. Well, I know we're taking the approach that, hey, we still have a lot of work to do. We have a lot to play for. And you never know, man. You know, nothing's a hundred percent. So we know we just can't go out there and lay an egg Thursday and then just expect, you know, to to have a spot in the tournament. We can't leave it in somebody else's hands. So we have to just go out there and play our best. And uh, like I just, you know, tell the guys all the time um, when they come up and ask questions about um, of years past of how guys dealt with certain stuff or not making it and how, like, what our mindset was, like, years before we didn't make it that helped us, you know, get over the hump the next year. I just tell them, man, hey, just think about all the times um, that that you, you've not made it. Think about all those those summers and springs where everybody was telling you how, how big of a failure you were and that you were never going to make it and um, something needs to be changed, certain players need to be gone and stuff like that. Brian and TD and some guys who've been here a while and um, who've had to – you know, we'll fight through a lot of adversity with last year we went in 12 games and the year before that they, they make it to the NIT. Like, so it's just been like countless years these guys in this room, well, some of these guys in this room not making it to the big dance. And, um, you know, they, they feel like, hey, like I said, it's, it's a lot more work to do, especially in, a, um, you know, a high-intensity high, um, sport like we play. When you think back to 2013, you were the emotional catalyst for that team. I know everyone thinks emotion, thinks Marshall Henderson, but even Marshall would acknowledge you were the heart and soul of the 2013 team that made it through the SEC tournament to the NCAA tournament. Who's that player for this team? Um, I would say I think a lot of these guys on this team show a lot of emotion, but I think as a lot of people seen um, – Saturday and with his words after in the, in the post game, Devonte Shooter just was not going to let this team lose. I feel like he um, he's probably one of the more quiet quieter guys on the team, but it's starting to show now. Like he he's become so much more confident in his game as he as as the season has gone on, and he's just he's just showing what everybody thought he was going to be, and um, it's been great to watch. Who was the more emotional player? Marshall Henderson or Nick Williams? It's easy to say Marshall. He was more in your face about it. But you were about the most competitive player on that roster. So who would you give it to? Yeah, he was 100% more emotional. Um, but I think that's what made him great. Um, that's what made him so lovable. Everybody still, 
you know, asked me questions about him, have you talked to him, what was he like, what, like how good of a teammate he was. And um, I just tell him he was awesome, man. And he um, he was just great. Like, you know better than anybody, man. That dude laid it all out there on the floor. And um, he was he just brought a lot of emotion to our team. When you look at this team and what allowed it to take the step to get to the NCAA tournament, what was the turning point for this team, do you think? I know it's not done. I know you don't want to count your chickens before they hatch, but what allowed this team to be put in this position to potentially be in the NCAA tournament? What was the turning point, do you think? I just remember the intensity um, Coach Davis brought with him in the, in the first couple of workouts in the spring and like the assistant coaches, like their attention to detail and Coach Davis's attention to detail um it was it was something that these guys needed and obviously not to say that the last you know the last coaches didn't do that because that's that's not what i'm saying i'm just i'm just saying like he he brought like a uh um a, a freshness that these most of these guys needed and um that canada trip helped us a lot like as far as like seeing what we had and um just seeing if guys could fight through adversity you know, because we we got down big in one of our in the last game, and guys fought back, and um, they just gave us some hope that hey man, these guys aren't going to lay down, have a year like we had last year, because it would be unfair to Bruce and and to TD and DC and guys who've been here, you know, some years to just lay down. You know, Kermit said after the game at Missouri that he had put it on the board, told Terrence Davis, Brian Tyree, the rest of the team. This is a play-in game for the NCAA tournament. So to go and get it, to win it, to rally, to come back, was there a sense of relief in the locker room? I think a little bit. Um, it's, always, it's always a relief to win a game, a tough game at that when Missouri's been playing so well over the last three or four games and um, been beating people and out-rebounding people. And um, we come into the game, we, we've lost three straight just just nail-biters, you know, um, games we, we could have won and – you know, some of us feel like we should have won. And, uh, you know, all all of those games, all the games we play are, were going to be tough games. But these guys, they fought. Like I said, they fought. And um, it's just a testament to the coaches and having them prepared and all the other things that would get us ready to, you know, beat a, a good Missouri team who's who's been playing well lately. You transferred to Ole Miss from Indiana, didn't win many games at Indiana. Ole Miss trying to get to the NCAA tournament, coming to a place where – always own the bubble, you get in, but y'all had to learn how to win, especially in those tough games where so much is on the line. What does it take for a team to learn how to win? How do you learn how to win? I think it starts in practice. Uh, Coach Davis is adamant about, hey, man, you you, you play how you practice. And um, he's got a, a proven track record of, of not starting guys when they've had bad practice weeks and stuff like that. So we are adamant here and with this with this team that hey we have to have great practices for us to go out there and, and play great games. These guys, like I said, these guys are, are amazing with that. And for us to be able to you know win tough games, you have to be tough in practice, and you have to go through scenarios in practice and, and situations and stuff like that. So. Getting over the hump, it's um, I mean, it starts in practice, and um, most people like learn how to win, and not somewhere believe that along the line you have to be able to learn from all these losses and all these mistakes 
and turn them into wins, man, because you just can't keep losing and then expect to, hey, we've lost so much, now we know how to win. No, you have to eventually keep plugging along, plugging along, and start to turn some 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 bad habits into um, great habits. Bruce has had his best stretches in Ole Miss Rebel in two years, the last two weeks. What's really turned for him, do you think? Um, I just think as the season go on, you know, you, you, you have so many ups and downs. And the better teams, they always they, – they know – that hey, we're gonna have some highs, we're gonna have some lows, but if we stick together, we can we can do whatever we want. And I feel like um, these guys have come together over the last month or so in in league play, knowing that hey man, I can't let down, I can't let my teammate down. No matter how tired I am, no matter how how bad I've been playing or how good I've been playing, do I have to make this assignment? I have to do my assignment so I won't let my teammates down. And I think that that's what these guys have have finally understood and have come together on like, Hey man, no matter how I'm feeling, I can't let my brother down. I've got to be in this spot. I've got to get this rebound. I've got to go over and take this charge or whatever. I got to give myself up for the team. But I feel like he's done a great job of, of listening to the coaches and just being a, a, a coachable kid. The great, the greatest thing a player can do as far as like being a part of a team is knowing your role, ex- accepting your role, and then, you know, doing your job. And um, I think that's what um, Bruce has done over the last couple of weeks. Your NCAA tournament trip almost was a 12, beat Wisconsin in the first round of five, lost to LaSalle in the second. When these players come up to you with the NCAA tournament on deck and say, Nick, I've never been there. I don't know what to expect. What do you say to them? What can they expect? It's, it's different, but not so much. Um, obviously, everything ramps up, every position counts but that's how we've been playing for the last you know month or so so I mean it's different but it's it's just everything that you've been going through the whole year is just on another level it's amped up everything is like everything's right on top of you so you know every turnover uh, every missed assignment is going to be magnified and it's feel it's going to feel like it's 10 times worse but you can't you can't let that creep into your mind. You can't start playing tentative, and you can't start you know starting to you know wince and and just worry about every little thing that's gonna gonna happen. Because you're gonna be some like I said, there's gonna be some highs, there's gonna be some lows, some ebbs and flows in each game. But you gotta stay the course. And uh, that's what I just tell any of these guys when they come up with questions about you know SEC tournament or just big games. Period. You gotta stay the course and you gotta be even keel and know that, you know, it's going to be some ups and downs, but you just got to stay on a straight and narrow. When you look at the NCAA tournament and you think about the reward it is for players, does it feel like an accomplishment in and of itself to get in? You know, because it's very easy to feel like, oh, it's just a tournament. If you're not one of the ones making the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight or the Final Four, that it's not a true reward. But for players, does it feel like a reward when you get in there? Oh, absolutely, man. You've been You've been fighting – all spring, all summer, you know, and all in the regular season and through your um, postseason conference tournaments, just to to be one of the the final the final sixty what sixty six sixty four teams. I can't remember There's so many teams now. Just the final the sixty four teams, man. This is a it's a great accomplishment, man. It's a great accomplishment too. You know, to look at these guys and the best feeling is you you in your in this room and you're watching the TV or you're watching the big screen or whatever, and then they call your name and wait, what city you're going to play in. It's just, it's just, it's a great feeling to see that all your hard work has, you know, paid off and to get into a place 
where get to a place where not many people have gone, you know, and to to have a chance to fight for something that a lot of people don't get a chance to fight for. So it's a great accomplishment, man, and it's a, it's a great feeling. Who wins, the 2013 Ole Miss basketball team or 2018-19? Yes. That's my answer, yes. Uh-huh. You're just going to avoid it. <laughs> I'll say this, the post offense for the 2013 team would give this team some problems, but that that would be a pretty competitive game. uh, The guard play, the guard defense from like Devontae Shuler on like a Marshall be pretty solid. It'd be pretty feisty, but that 2013 team, y'all were some some dogs over there. Y'all would make life tough for this team. Listen, man, these three guards that we have now are really good. That's all I'm going to (sighs) say. Old competitive Nick that wasn't a coach would have never just given me that. He'd have just straight up said, oh, 2013, easy. I know that Listen, Nick in man. practice is the coach. I know you're still in their ear and, and constantly talking some noise to him. I know you are. Listen, this team this team is, is special. It's been great. This year, like, it, these guys are great, man. And I would, I would never, ever say that – we could beat them. But I would never say they could beat us. So, you know, yeah. my answer is yes, man. <laughs> It'd be a tie. Oh, okay. That's fine. That's okay. I will say that the net rankings have been so huge for this team with no bad losses. Those are weighed evenly against, like, strength of schedule and things that maybe warts on former resumes and would be a wart on this resume. It's helped that all the other peripherals, the margins for Ole Miss basketball in 2018-19 have helped their resume and are solidly in. But I look back at those teams when y'all were just scratching and clawing to try to get in, how much the net rankings would have helped y'all to get in, and you maybe would have had one or two more appearances. Do you feel like this is a good measure for NCAA tournament teams, a more fair measure, considering what it used to be and how convoluted it used to be? I think so. I think uh, back when I played, I don't don't think – I think we had a lot of good teams, man. And but the SEC back then was just so so football dominant, man. I don't think we, I don't think the teams in the SEC got a lot of respect. When you think about all those teams that Tennessee had with Wayne Chisholm and all those guys, Mississippi State. Did D. Boss ever make a, uh, a tournament? Yeah, I don't think he did. That's what I'm saying. Like with, with those teams, Mississippi State had and stuff like that. Like you can't tell me those weren't tournament teams and. Like I, I, I just refuse to believe that, man. And um, you know, I just I just think I think uh the the league is is better than ever now and um uh, we've had a lot of opportunities to play some, some really good teams and um for the most part we've taken care of our business and um it's it's just that the league is in a better place now because I feel like back when I played I don't think teams got the respect that they deserve. Is the SEC the best it's ever been? It's hard to say. It's hard to say, man, but we we're getting more teams in now than we've ever have, so that's a plus. Um, but it's it's hard to say, man, because it's always been some some great teams in this league, and um, this league is just going to get better and better. You're on one side as a player for NCAA tournament selection Sunday. Now you'll be on the other side as a coach. What's that like for you? It's going to be different. I think it's going to be, man, even more exciting to um, you know just to see how hard these guys have worked, man. Like I said, they, they've worked so, so hard. They've been coachable. They've just been great, coming in with great attitudes every day, practicing as hard as they could. It's just going to be so much fun, you know, to watch the 
the the the excitement and see all these these smiles on these guys' faces and uh, to to finally be a part and then not just hearing about it and you know through word of my, through word of mouth from other people telling them how how great the NCAA tournament is or how great their teams was they want to you know they want to be they want to talk about their team too and they I feel like we have a good chance for for them to finally start doing that. Well, last one for Ole Miss basketball fans to see Ole Miss basketball get back to this place where you're packing out the arena seemingly every night. You've got all this groundswell of support for the program. You're a part of the rebirth in many ways of Ole Miss basketball in 2013, making the NCAA tournament by winning the SEC tournament. To see that back, that excitement back for you as a former player and now as a coach, what is that like? It's a lot of fun. I know my first game back, like I want to say two years ago, when uh, we played uh, we played Auburn here, and they came back from like twenty at halftime or something like that, and it was I, I just kept I couldn't help but to think like man I wish I could have played in Pavilion, you know it's just the fans are great the the city is great it, the people are great it's just so so much fun seeing all these people rush into these games and to cheer these guys on, and I feel like Coach Davis again has done a great job of going out and, and just showing people how much we appreciate them showing up to our games and cheering us on. Because I, it, it's been a lot of times where, you know, Tad Smith was empty, man. And um, it's just so much fun to see all these people come out and, and support our team. It's been amazing. He's Nick Williams, former Ole Miss guard, now an assistant under Kermit Davis at Ole Miss. The SEC tournament starting today for Ole Miss, the 7-10 matchup with Alabama. If Ole Miss advances, it'll take on Kentucky on Friday. Thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate you. Best of luck this week, and let's catch up soon. Thanks, man. See you. You've walked this path many times before. It's a chance to think, especially about your future. How will you turn your retirement dreams into reality? Will you have enough gold for your golden years? Your choices for building funds for retirement can be complicated. Fortunately, you have a friend in the community who can help you make the right decisions. That's your modern Woodman agent. Your agent is a skilled professional who will listen to your needs and desires and then work with you to create a plan that uses the right financial products to achieve your retirement goals. Build a lasting professional relationship with a trusted financial advisor. Hi, this is Thomas Chandler, your local Modern Woodman representative. Give me a call today at 662-296-0186. Let's make a difference together. Hotty toddy and go Rebs. Get in touch with your agent today. Modern Woodman of America. Touching lives, securing futures. That was former Ole Miss guard, now Ole Miss basketball assistant Nick Williams. This is Talk of Champions. I'm Ben Garrett at Spirit Ben on Twitter. He's been at Hip sitting in the guest co-host chair. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, review, Talk of Champions, and iTunes. We're also available on SoundCloud and soon, hopefully, very soon, Rebel Sports Radio. Back on Rebel Sports Radio. Details to come on that and check out the Ole Miss Spirit, omspirit.com, an affiliate of 247 Sports, the website that I write for. Where does this team, do you think, rank? as far as the greatest Ole Miss basketball teams of all time? Ooh, it's tough. I mean, obviously, we'll, we'll see what they do in the tournament. But I think it's up there. You know, I, I think obviously the, the two um, tournament teams for AK are, are above this season. But I, I don't think – I think this one's going to be looked back much more fondly. I, I think obviously pretty impressive now. It, it's a really great accomplishment. But I, I think if Kermit does what we think he's going to do – and turns this into a, a consistent winner that, that makes a tournament, maybe not every year, but almost every season. 
I think this season will, you know, 10 years down the road, you'll look back and say this really kind of jump-started everything, whether it was on-court stuff or recruiting or player development, all that kind of stuff. So I think it, you know, it's certainly a, a top 10 almost basketball season of all time. There's no doubt about that. And it, I think it'll go higher um, as time passes and we get more perspective on, on what this, you know, on what this looks to be building and, and building into. It's not official, but Ole Miss is going to be an NCAA tournament team. It'll be the ninth NCAA tournament appearance in school history. That's absurd, but it's true. Right. Only one time in Ole Miss basketball history has an Ole Miss basketball team gotten to the Sweet 16. Now, it's going to be hard for Ole Miss if it's an 8-9 matched up with a 1. If that 1 is Duke, they are not winning. It's going to be hard to beat a 1 no matter what if they're the 8-9. But if they're the 8-9, that's what they have to do to get to the Sweet 16 after the first round. Now, it can happen, but if they were to do it, they would match the greatest accomplishment in school history. That would certainly raise the profile of this season in particular. The only issue that keeps this team from being compared to even the 2013 team, I think, that won ultimately 27 games, the criteria to get into the tournament was different. It was tougher. Now Ole Miss is getting into the tournament with the net rankings, and if you look at it compared to past teams that didn't make it, it's pretty similar. So they're given that advantage, but that's a negative mark as far as where it stands all time for Ole Miss basketball. doesn't change the fact that they're making the NCAA tournament in year one. So regardless of what else happens, it's a top nine season. It could go further if they match the Sweet 16. But I look at 2013, not only did they win the SEC tournament, not only did they win a first-round game, but that that team raised the profile of Ole Miss basketball. Marshall Henderson changed the brand of Ole Miss basketball and the expectation for Ole Miss basketball. 2015 was fun. Beating BYU in Dayton when you're down 20 at halftime was fun. It wasn't for me. I had to drive through the <laughs> night from Dayton to Nashville to fly to Jacksonville for a media op the very next day. It was miserable, then fly back to Nashville once Ole Miss was eliminated and drive home. It was tough from a media perspective. No one cares about that. But I, I would put Ole Miss above the 2015 team, the one team in the 80s, 1981, where it becomes tricky for me is I don't know if this team matches up with the 1999 team. I don't know if this team matches up with 1998, but the problem with the 1998 team, which I thought was the greatest Ole Miss basketball collection of talent of all time, is they lost to Valpo as a four seed right. in the first round. So it depends on what you're weighing. I would say right now they're probably sixth or seventh, but they could easily work into the top five. And if they make it to the Sweet 16, no choice. you got to put them two. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because uh, I think you you look at 2013, you know, not only do they go in. 2001 is the greatest season. It just is. Yeah, for sure. There's no no argument there. Uh, you know, you look at 2013, they make the run in Nashville to get in. Uh, they beat a Wisconsin team that was, a you know, if you go by Kimpom, that's the number 12 team in the country for that season. And that, that roster had Sam Decker, it had Frank Kaminsky, you know, Bo Ryan's a Hall of Fame basketball coach. You know, and, and I think, um, you know, I know it happened in Dayton. And so, it you know, there's a stigma there. But, you know, oh, 2015. I, I, thought that was, I thought that was perfect for Ole Miss basketball that year. Well, it's, it's just uh, winning in Dayton. But, you know, that that BYU team was really, really, really good. Yeah, I really mean, that, good. They, they were 25 and nine in the regular season, uh, made it to the finals of the West Coast Conference Tournament, I believe. Uh, beat Gonzaga in the regular season. You know, so that was a you look at Kim Palm for them. They're a top 30 team in 2015. Yeah, it happened at Dayton, but Ole Miss went and beat a really, really good basketball team in the NCAA tournament that year. And then obviously ran into it Xavier and, and we're just kind of out of gas. So I, I think it's tough, but I, I do think this team is good enough to where, 
you know, if they win one in the tournament, they bump up pretty significantly in terms of, you know, best seasons in Ole Miss basketball history. And then obviously take a shot at a one seed. They're, they're, you know, they're no good, really, no, really good, no good matchups. But, you know, if you were to get Duke without Zion or something like that, I, I think the worst one matchup would be Virginia. I don't know. I don't know how Ole Miss would even begin to, to attack Virginia offensively. So, um, but you take your shot, you know. And so I think uh, I think you know, if they were to make a run in Nashville this week, or to somehow get the second weekend of the tournament or something like that, I, I think you're kind of looking at kind of bumping up and definitely becoming one of the best five seasons or best five teams in Ole Miss history, which is which is crazy to say. You know, not that Ole Miss has some storied basketball history, but you know this team just. I, I think if you had told people before the season, hey, this is going to be a top ten. You know, potential season in almost basketball history. Everyone would have looked at you crazy, like, "What are you talking about?" And yet, somehow, here they are, with a chance to really do some damage here uh, and at least win one game in the tournament in an eight-nine matchup. Nothing's going to top two thousand one unless Ole Miss makes it to the Elite Eight. I'm sorry, even if Ole Miss makes it to the Sweet Sixteen this year, tremendous accomplishment, year one of Kermit Davis. But that two thousand one team was special. You beat Iona by two in the first round. Number six Notre Dame. That's the Jason Harrison shot. It's hard to beat the Jason Harrison shot, okay? Now, going and getting beat by 10 by number two Arizona, it was a tough loss. But that team, it's just special as far as Ole Miss basketball is concerned. It's just You remember that if if you're an Ole Miss fan to this day, how far that team came along, especially after two years in a row, which were disappointing. The number four seed losing to Valpo. You beat Villanova in the first round as a nine seed in 1999, but you turn around and lose to Mateen Cleaves in Michigan State, the number one seed, 74 to 66. So to come back in 2001 and break through that ceiling, it gain another game, they lost in the first round, then they advanced past the first round, then they advanced past the second round of the Sweet 16. Hard to beat that. But if this team does get to the Sweet 16, it'll at least be in the conversation. Right now, I'd say six or seven. And to me, that's the biggest accomplishment of the entire year. No one expected this. We've been through all that. But the fact that, yes, the net rankings have helped this team make sure that they've avoided the bubble. The bubble is weak. You can add all those qualifiers. But they've still beaten Auburn twice. They beat State. They hung with Kentucky. They hung with Tennessee. They've passed the eye test. There, There is no real uh, knock against this team other than they maybe should be 22 or 23 wins rather than just at 20. And that says a lot, I think. You know, I, It'd be easy to dismiss things with any Ole Miss team and pick out the losses, but there are no bad losses with this team. There are none. This one ranks pretty highly. It's hard to find the flaw of this team. We all know what the problems are as far as personnel is concerned, but the resume – and with in the overall body of work, they did about as well as they possibly could, and that's why the strength of the top to bottom resume is going to hold up historically for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's crazy to think that you could. I wouldn't make the argument just because it's dumb, but you could make an argument that somehow this team underachieved by like a win or two in conference, and you know they went, you know, they're the sixth or the, the seventh seed in the tournament. And or a clear NCAA tournament team, and yet you know you're a shot away from at Florida, or a couple shots away against Tennessee or Kentucky from you know from really having a truly special season. So it's um it's a credit to Kermit for the job he's done. It's a credit to the players for kind of buying in and you know kind of embracing knowing that they only have you know six or seven guys really um that are supposed to be playing at this level. So it's um. It's like I said earlier, it's going to be a team that's looked back on fondly as the years pass. 
the SEC All-SEC teams, Coach of the Year, Player of the Year, those awards are a little bit different than the AP and others. A lot of guys get named All-SEC. There's not five just getting named All-SEC first team. It can be eight, nine, ten. Brian Tyree gets first team. But Kermit Davis, again, the story, sweeping so far, Coach of the Year honors. And Kermit Davis is just the third active SEC head coach to win at least 20 games in his first season in the conference. He's the SEC Men's Basketball Coach of the Year. As he should. And, yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I, I like the AP putting five guys on teams. You can play five guys at once. You know, the the SEC team has eight guys, which is basically half of almost a full roster of, of players on the first team, which, hey, do, 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 your, do your thing. But I, I've never understood why that's a thing. So you have 16 guys make first or second team all SEC, which is more than you can have on a whole roster. So, uh, but yeah, good for Brian. I think first team is, is well deserved and, and good for Terrence. I, I think, um, yeah, he was inconsistent at times, but um, his big moments were were as big as anyone else's. And, and uh, they don't win some of the games that they do uh, without his contributions. And so it's kind of a good. Um, you got a career send off for him to, to go ahead and make a uh, second team all SEC as a senior. So good for him. Yeah. I, I'm surprised quite frankly that um, we're sitting here at the end of the year. And if you told me, well, Terrence Davis is going to end up second team or third team all SEC. I go, oh, well no, well, no, they're not going to be all that good. Right. Like I, I would have thought TD would need to play at an all league player of the year type level for this team to make it. And yet Devonte Shuler, Brian Tyree, Bruce Stevens with his contributions. This team has figured out a way, and that's why Kermit Davis is coach of the year. Absolutely. I mean, it's um, it's a credit to him and really kind of makes you just excited for the future. I mean, it, this was a team that had three really good guards and not a whole lot else, and they've been able to make it work and gotten you know pretty big minutes from guys like Bruce Stevens and, and D.C. Davis and some contributions from you know some freshmen and, and have just kind of passed, worked it together and have been competitive in almost every SEC game, which is, you know, a credit to them. Like, you know, from a talent standpoint, they don't measure up against a Tennessee or a Kentucky, and yet there they were late in games fighting for those wins. So it's um, it really is a, just a fantastic coaching job on his part and uh, a pretty exciting building block as, as things go forward. Okay, what will be the main headline storylines coming out of the SEC tournament? Go. I think it has to be the LSU stuff. I mean – does what is there any sort of resolution on will wade either way is there some sort of resolution on you know javante smart is is he going to play ever again at lsu is you know there's some you know conspiracy stuff around naz reed whether his injury is real and and that's you know and whether it's actually related to all that stuff so as much as the sec is going to hate it the big story is going to be lsu because that's a team that when they're have all their guys and have Will Wade. I don't know that they're a national title contender, but that's a team that can absolutely make the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, with the amount of talent that they have. And and they're going to be without their coach and without one of their best guys. So um, I think that'll be a big headline. And, and then I just think Kentucky is going to run through this tournament and, and you know, win another SC tournament title. And it's going to be uh, one of one of Coach Cal's better coaching jobs. And so I think they'll be he'll get um, a, a good bit of pub for that as well as he should. Yeah, I think Kentucky's going to win. I, I think they're the best team in the SEC, and this feels like a Kentucky championship again. Just feels yeah, like I, I I just have a hard time, especially if if Reed Travis is healthy and that it seems to be that he's going to at least play somewhat in this tournament uh, w- with their guards and how good they are, and PJ Washington, how good he is. I, I think I just think it's so hard, especially 
yeah, it's in Nashville, but there's going to be like it is at every SEC basketball tournament going to be a home game basically for Kentucky. So unless they just have a super off night, I just have a hard time seeing anyone being this Kentucky team and keeping them from getting there on Sunday. Who do they play? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Cause I think, you know, I, I think there's a path to where it's an Auburn or like a South Carolina or something like that. Um, because I, I think Auburn's playing well at the right time. They just beat Tennessee. You know, their path is is pretty, pretty you know, relatively easy. And I think South Carolina has a chance too, just because they get the double bye to Friday, which is so big for them. They also get AJ Lawson back, who has been hurt. So if he's healthy and playing well, that's a team that's beaten a lot of good teams in the league this year. So I, I'd probably go with Auburn, I guess. Um, but I think it's I think it's gonna be one of those things where. There could be a number of teams that make it, and it wouldn't surprise me at all. You know, because I think Kentucky has separated itself as at one. I think Tennessee has separated itself as at two. But there, that group of teams in the middle is—they're so similar and so good that anyone could come out of that, and it wouldn't really surprise me at all. Who's the sleeper team of all sleeper teams for you? Uh, you know, I, I think it's probably weird to say that the number four seed is a sleeper, but I, I, again, I think South Carolina is a real sleeper, you know, possibility. Um, you know, because they are a veteran team, they're going to play hard, and you know, they've got their guys back now, and they've beaten Auburn, they've beaten you know a bunch of big teams like that. So I think there's a, a pretty good chance that they make a run to Sunday, and I don't think they're good enough to beat Kentucky or anything like that, but. Uh, I think people are, are kind of counting on them to lose on Friday night as a, you know, after the double bye. I just don't think they're going to do it. He's been at Hip. I'm Ben Garrett. This has been Talk of Champions. Subscribe, rate, review Talk of Champions and iTunes. We'll be back next week. Me and Kentrell Lockett first, and then the next guest co-host. Might be Ben, it might be Corey, might be Kentrell, Bunky Perkins. I don't know. It's just how I'm feeling that day. <laughs> You'll figure it out. Yeah, I'll figure it out. As Ole Miss heads into the NCAA tournament, make sure to subscribe, rate, review Talk of Champions and iTunes. We're also available on SoundCloud. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And now we go to Maester Daniel for the night. It's dark and full of spoilers. I promised you guys a Game of Thrones segment a couple of weeks ago for a mailbag. Wasn't able to get it in. We get it in right now. It's the night is dark and full of spoilers. I believe you might be missing the greater point of the show, Paladin Butters. Yeah, I know. Winter is coming and there's dragons and zombies on the way. I'm pretty excited for that. Broadcasting from the bowels of the Red Keep, a king's road away from a fallen Winterfell, and their wintry exile of Castle Black. You're listening to The Night is Dark and Full of Spoilers with Maester Daniel and Ben of House Garrett, Lord of Oxford and Warden of North Mississippi, and other things that sound cool and stuff. For the night is dark and full of... Spoilers. It's it's full of spoilers and stuff. The night is dark and full of... Spoilers! watching that show and I'm still waiting for the darn dragons to show up and, and kick everyone's butts. This is The Night is Dark and Full of Spoilers. I'm Ben. He's Maester Daniel. I can't remember what I'm the lord of, but that doesn't matter. Game of Thrones came out with a trailer last week for season eight, the final season of Game of Thrones. Maester Daniel, as we get into this, your biggest takeaways from the trailer. Well, my biggest takeaway from the trailer, I guess, is that... Um, I think Arya is going to play a much more pivotal role going forward yep. than I previously thought. I think that's really what you know it comes down to. Um, I'm really excited because I think that they have some some good twists planned, but I'm also 
I, I'm starting to get the feeling just the way that they when they you know they release the run times today, um, and they're not as long as previously anticipated, and I think that really puts a damper on what people this whole anticipation building up over two years are supposed to be for these feature length episodes or close to feature length, at least, you know, at least 75, 80 minutes for each one. And the first three are on our, you know, hour or less than an hour. And that's not even counting the, you know, if you, if you're not counting the recaps or credits or, you know, the end, the end preview. So I just, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to look at it with healthy skepticism, just like you are before we go forward. Yeah. The last two episodes are 80 minutes a piece, but 54 for the season debut of Game of Thrones season eight. That is concerning to me. But back to the trailer. Arya, it's interesting. She's the character we most associate with fighting, yet she's never been involved in any type of major battle. So you're finally going to see that. I think the Battle of Winterfell is episode three of season eight. We'll get to that in a minute. But in the trailer, she's obviously scared. And now she's a faceless person, though she still has her identity as Arya Stark. That was a big moment for her when she told Jack and I'm Arya Stark, I'm going home. So we know she's still Arya, but she's never had this sense of being afraid, which tells me she sees something in those crypts of Winterfell, which really freaks her out. What could that be? That couldn't just be the army of the dead. Is, will something happen in those crypts? Will a Stark raise from the dead that she has to fight and kill? What would make Arya so scared? That could be one of them, seeing the dead themselves, because Arya really hasn't dealt with the living dead yet. Um, it could be, you know, if they go with the brand Night King continual, you know, life is a continual circle. Um, you know, they, they could, it could be brand as the, you know, she could see brand or, or feel brand, you know, she's one of the few that's been shown in the show to have some morguing ability. So maybe she sees something or, you know, is with brand enough that some of those powers maybe, you know, she, she can adapt to those. And that can be really what she goes through. But my thing is, it's probably the Night King or one of the White Walkers themselves that have that have been able to psychologically break her at that point. Because she's not a runner, as you said. She's mostly, you know, she's been around dead people and clean dead people, taking their faces, going through the blood magic. Not as, you know, obviously not as covered as much in the show. But, you know, I hope it's not the... Um, time is a flat circle i hope it's i hope it's you know if, if it's it could be cool if ned's body without his head comes back or one of her relatives that she previously thought dead like Rickon. you know that could be one where they bring him back because that could easily you know that's one that you know that kid really got a raw deal when it came to the show and recently dead um you know you have thousands of recently dead men from the battle of the bastards it could be a zombie um, uh, a zombie Ramsey. So, you know, that, that's something that would really freak, that would really make her blood get hot and make her want to run away. Cause there's nothing, you know, there's nothing more scary than a sadistic murderer as a reanimated corpse and, and, and as a, a white and a slave of the most evil person in the kingdom. The Crips are obviously going to play a major role in this season. They've played a major role throughout the entire series. Uh, John being in the crypts in the trailers, looking at Liana potentially, looking at Ned, all the buildup was in the crypts, not to mention all the meetings in the crypts. Littlefinger and Sansa were in the crypts, Ned talking to John in the crypts, all these type of moments where you saw 
Arya and Sansa and the Crips, all of the Crips scenes lead to potentially something. And one thing I wanted to talk about as we get into this Game of Thrones perspective going into season eight is we know that Winterfell was built on hot springs, which has kept it warm in the greatest winters or whenever it would get really cold. It allowed people to stay warm. The Crips, there's magic potentially from the books and what the Crips um, can hold and in the swords protecting the different bodies that are in the crypts, how deep the crypts go, how there's a potential dragon in the crypts of Winterfell that maybe could get raised up that would scare Arya. What role could the crypts play, or can they not, as the show truncates everything from the books, not get too far into the weeds with the crypts? Do you think there's a role to play there, or do you think uh, they'll just kind of gloss over that and, and play a smaller role? What role could the crypts play? I think it's probably the latter part. I think it's mostly going to be you know, a truncated style of you know of explanation because as you said they can't cover a lot of the mystical aspects of what the crypts represent you know they can get what do um, they represent in the books in the in the in the books they represent the stark family they are the stark family's motto um you know personified it, they they are the watchers on the wall for the the winterfell and the and the stark family and the Stark family crest, the winners coming, the, the words, the, the family words. Um, and they all have a dire wolf at their feet and they're all holding their sword over their lap. It, it's, it's, uh, in the books, um, they notice the swords are gone. Theon notices the swords are gone and they're being, t- they've been taken by Hodor, Bran, Mira, Jojen, that whole crew. Um, but he doesn't know that. And it gives him a sense of foreboding. And it also symbolizes really what the, um, What's setting up to be the Grand Northern Conspiracy? Obviously, we can't talk about that here because that it really doesn't have any bearing on the show itself. I mean, they're so far past that whole storyline that you know it would be a waste of our time here to talk about it. But that really forebodes what the Northern houses have come to. There's revenge. The Starks are about you know they're like Japanese. They have long memories and they don't remember. They don't forget. They they don't forgive easily either. And so. Um, that's what really the, the crypts represent the Starks and the the family themselves and how closely they are, um, you know, linked to the North and how they are the the quintessential Northern family. How they protected the North for thousands of years before the the conquest. Even they they're still part of the North men. They're still part of, you know, they still worship the old gods. They worship the weirwoods. That's why their weirwood tree is, is so large. And, and the burning of the weirwood when Ramsey does it in the books is especially another one of those symbolic things. It's because of th- that's really what that whole that's what Winterfell is. That's why the burning of Winterfell and losing Winterfell and having the Stark children back there in the books is such a big deal. But the, I don't think they're going to do any kind of, you know, like you said, um, try to get into some of the more fant- fantastical elements of the, the crypts themselves just because they don't have, they're just, I mean, they don't have the time. I mean, if maybe if they had done 90 minute episodes, 80 minute episodes all the way around or had quit doing things like the gray worm, Miss Sandy Davos learning to read um, storylines that, you know, we could have gotten it, but we don't, we didn't, we're out of time here. One thing that will happen is the exposition of John's parentage will happen in the crypts, but the dragon that could potentially be under the crypts of Winterfell and the magic involved. 
You don't think a dragon? No, I don't think there's going to be any dragons of. So the three dragons in the show, those are the three dragons. Those are the three. Those are the three. I don't think they can introduce anything like that this late in the game. I proposed um, in the mailbag edition of Talk of Champions weeks ago that we'd have a Game of Thrones segment. Matt Luke ended up being the guest on that Talk of Champions, so we had to bump it till now. And I'll get to your questions in just a minute. But looking at the trailer and different things that I took away from it, what could Cersei, as she's drinking the wine, what could be bringing tears to her eyes? The only thing that makes sense is she's not going to drink as she turned down Tyrion, uh, Tyrion's offer to drink when they had the discussion in the season finale, season seven. Maybe that has to do with losing the child. That's why she has tears in her eyes. What's Cersei's role to play early on? Because it seems to me she's isolated and by herself. The Golden Company, Euron Greyjoy could claim that that uh, that army for himself. Uh, Cersei really has no allies. Her brother is gone. He's gone to fight for the living in Winterfell. That's going to be an interesting interesting thing that they touched on very early. He's going to have to explain himself to Bran and to Jon Snow and all these different people that he's wronged in being an enemy to Ned in season one. That will happen. But Cersei, what is going on with her? Is she that alone? I mean, what what could happen with her? She's going to have to get out of the game pretty quickly, I think. Well, uh, this is, you know, I, I had this discussion with another one of our friends uh, about what Cersei's role is to play. And I think that really this is what is going to happen. I mean, you, you talk about army sizes and it's going to get a little, I'm just going to go through military stuff in just a second, just just numbers wise. Well, real quick, I think this is where you're going and I want to touch on this. In the trailer, you don't see the Night King. Could no. it be that the Army of the Dead is attacking Winterfell for the Battle of Winterfell, but also the Night King is attacking King's Landing at the same time? Absolutely, absolutely. Because, you know, Let's just be. Let's just say a low number and say they have three hundred thousand people that that broke the wall down because you know that army, the army of wildlings, was gigantic. One of the biggest armies that ever ever existed in the, in this show or in the in this universe, and they have all been taken over. Then you have all the dead that can be raised through from Stannis's army from the Battle of the Bastards for, for all the north, basically the, basically the rogue northern houses. And all the men, women, and children that they've lost that Ramsey has slaughtered or Ramsey has killed, um, you know, you're talking about a huge mass of territory. You have all the dead south of the wall, too. You're talking from Daenerys' conquest of Dragonstone and the Reach, which is the largest army in the entire Seven Kingdoms, which has been, for all intents and purposes— wiped from the table we have the lannisters and the um the tyrells who are gone we have a ton of dead from the previous war of the five kings um from all the way to the from the Greyjoys to any of the great houses they're all decimated um in, in basically every single fashion and i think that so let's say let's just use that high number let's say 300,000 made it through the wall you can add, I think, reasonably two hundred thousand dead to that if he has the potential. You know, if he st- that magic still works south of the wall to to get, you know, he is five hundred thousand strong. He could take half of his army. He could have his army two hundred fifty thousand apiece. Use two hundred fifty thousand of them to invest Winterfell in a siege, a siege which they don't have to eat or sleep, so they can literally siege for twenty four hours a day. Then you um, have the rest of them march south through the neck because there's nobody protecting the neck now. And you can have them in King's Landing because they don't have to eat or sleep or rest. 
they can invest King's Landing just as easily and surround the city without Cersei having any idea. She has no loyal. There's no houses that are loyal to her, or that anyone can um, come to her rescue. Besides the Golden Company, I think the Golden Company can't play that big of a role because it's so late in the game. You can't introduce a whole other army that would be this for her at least. This Deus Ex Machina that can save her. Um, I think they're just going to be cannon fodder. Honestly, I think it's going to be one of those where we think, expect, or anticipate this giant battle, and they just get completely you know, sliced and diced. So, you know, I think it's safe to say we're going to see many familiar faces in the army of the dead, but who do you expect to see? I expect to see, um, Hodor for one, because that's just, it's going to be a gut oh, punch, which man. I think that, that yeah, I think that's another, that, that's another possibility in the crypts is that, cause especially if you remember the earlier seasons when the white first came alive, um, but no undead Ned Stark, please. I don't think so either. I think that that, the decapitation really, well, I mean, uh, unless they completely go hackery, which is, impo- is is possible, of course, but unless they, you know, completely get over, you know, I think they'll get over that. I don't think they're going to try to do that. But Hodor is a very, is an emotional one for every Stark children. I think that if he showed up in the that crypts, could be what scares Arya. Yes, exactly. That could be what scares Arya, and because um, he was such a pivotal figure in Winterfell, and his mom was too, um, and whites retain the memory, some memory. That's what we saw with the old bear. I mean, all the way back in the first couple of seasons, if you remember when the, when the white came alive and John had to burn it alive, that's, you know, in the books, they go into that, how it has some memory of the person. So anyway, I think that could be it. I think that we're going to see some Jorah, maybe I think Jorah is probably a, a pretty good one that will, that will be able to psychologically affect Daenerys. Um, Tormund, I think, unfortunately, probably is going to bite it because I just don't see how any other, you know, any My other favorite way. favorite character on the show. I know. He's such a great character, period. Um, and so um, I just think that some of the, it's going to be some uh, some guys like that, some secondary, higher secondary tier characters that will be there. Um, and they, I think they're going to add to it. I think that you're going to see possibly um, Jamie. Um, I, you know, I think his redemption arc comes with him saving the Stark children. I think that's really what his end is for is is meant for is for because if he's you the really one think, that stabbed Yuri in the face, he's the one he's that, the, that pushed Bran out the yep. window that started the whole. You know, I think that's really yes. That's that, and he, you know, he, you know, he murdered Joy Jory Castle and all of Ned's, um, you know, household. I think he, you know, he stabbed Ned in the leg. Um, it, you know, he has all. Well, these, he didn't stab Ned in the leg. One of his. Well, I'm sorry. That's did, the that's and a, he punched the that yes. guy. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. Yeah. So. Um, well, if he does that. Who kills Cersei, fulfilling the prophecy? That's a great question. I think that Tyrion in the in the um, show probably has the greatest odds of doing it, just because of that. But I, I, it it wouldn't surprise me now if Cersei makes a deal with the devil here, and I don't mean that you know I mean that quite literally. I think she could be the one who you know she becomes the Night Queen. Almost, and that's when Jamie kills her, which could be you know that would subvert your expectations. In would a she way, have to would, die though to become the Night Queen? That's a great. I, I see. I don't know. I, you know, I don't. They, they've been so vague about what makes a White Walker a White Walker. I guess the the Night, the the Children of the Forest used their old magic to create him as a weapon of mass destruction against the First Men. So maybe he has the capability of you know 
through osmosis of his finger or, you know, whatever. Like he did with the baby. Turned the correct. But he could do it. Yeah, he could do it for his bride. And that could be Cersei, which would subvert your, you know, it would it would be a way to subvert expectations in a positive way. It doesn't answer the prophecy in any no, way. No, but well, it, do, it does if, if she lives, if she's alive, and then she dies again because then he would be she would still die by the Valonqar, which would be either Tyrion or, or Jamie. We never see the end of Cersei and Tyrion's, Tyrion's conversation in season seven. A lot of speculation that Tyrion will betray Danny in some way. Do you make anything out of that? And would that in any way poke a hole in the thought process that Tyrion would be the one to kill Cersei? Yes, uh, I think that you know. But I just there's that's one of those. Um, that's Why one did of they those, not show the end of the conversation? The, the, to, to, for dramatic tension, the same reason that it's to give themselves artistic license in case, you know, they, 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 because they, they can say they don't read, um, any, you know, any fans. They, of course they read fan theories. They read Reddit. They probably read, you know, a couple other sites. Watches oh, if on they the didn't, wall, it'd so be, they, they, they wouldn't have had so much fan fulfillment in season yeah, seven. Exactly. Season and, well, and, and I think that they are very cognizant of that. They're, they're, they're aware of what their fans think of them. And I think that they're really trying to give you, give us, that kind of um, closure. I don't know if it's going to be the type of closure. I don't think they're talented enough, honestly, to wrap it up, but also, you know, keep us guessing, subvert our expectations. I keep repeating that, but that's, you know, it's, it's a way to keep a fan base who's been anticipating the end of the story for 20 years, 20, 23 years. If you started reading 1996. So, um, I hope that that you know that that's the, the 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 reason they did that is to give themselves time to keep Tyrion interesting by you know having him finally get over on Cersei after she's had such a series of wins ever since season six, um, and to um, really you know that really hammers home that. Um, She's finally she's finally screwed the pooch because she's she's pulled herself. Uh, talk about plot. We talk about plot armor all the time. Cersei's plot armor is quite possibly one of the better than one of the greatest. She um, she's plot survived. armor was my biggest problem with season seven. You had well, the stupid the stupid plot device of going to get a weight to bring to Cersei, which was completely ill conceived both by the writers and in canon for the show. Um, have these nine main characters, none of which outside of some red coats get got other than theorists of myrrh. And that's a problem. And if you're going to have such a important moment in the show with all the white walkers and weights and the night King surrounding these guys, someone had to bite it and no one did. And the plot armor around John was bad enough. Plot armor around Danny was bad enough, but that's where the later seasons off book have really fallen flat in many respects because George R. R. Martin built his entire series around the expectation that anybody at any point can be gotten. But the, the, he also put he, – he even admits how much plot armor he puts around Tyrion himself in the books because he identifies so closely with him. So, yeah, and Tyrion survived a lot in this show too. I mean, yeah, so it's not – so he's not immune to He's that. the one that I mean, survived the, the Doom of Valyria when Jorah didn't. And, you know, and that's the thing. And that's really what the show – can't you know that that whole doom of valyria scene he's not sailing through valyria he's sailing through a whole other place um 
the but city I get that love. change because yeah. they needed to show Valyria. They, for the again, show. again, they can't show a lot of the giant, how big the Eastern Continent is and how you know the um, the age and the ancient cities that yeah, are that's, long. That's a small change I can buy. Buying Sansa yeah, and, yes, being and, subbed and, into a different character arc is different. But it makes so, a, pro- you know, a problem. I, but that it wasn't. Yeah, and so I get I, I understand the the complaints obviously, but no story is i mean from plot armor that's the point of main characters i mean you know you have to have you have to have a main character at the end of the day just you know that's the same way that um you know lost had to have had to have jack as that main driving force you know you can have all these you can have main characters that are extremely important but it's hard it's very hard to not have you know we, we talked about in the previous ones at the end of this story at the end of the day this is a story about John Daenerys. And when in those two storylines, and when they started cutting them down, and that's one of the reasons that George R. R. Martin has trouble finishing it, because he knows where this story is going, because it has to be about those two. It's about a love story at the end of the day. It's all about fate, you know, ill-fated love. It's about, you know, love that is cursed. A Romeo and Juliet saga that is set amongst horrible horrible death and that really is what and, that, and that's why you know you see all these just this plot armor used the way it is they they have used it in a much um heavier sense because like you said they have shortened so much of the plot lines in so many of these seasons that they can't reasonably get back to trying to you know expand the story like George has, but George into, into their credit. However, the story expansion that he, that the world building he did in the fourth and fifth books is, you know, besides to dorks like me is not good. The whole Brienne pod storyline in the books is a joke outside of finding the grave digger, which ends up becoming Sandor Clegane, which everybody thinks is Sandor Clegane. And so, is confirmed in the show because everyone knew that. Yes. I mean, that, that, yeah, Aaron, this, yes. Yeah. He's he, he's just as big as Brienne, and he, you know, he's obviously going to be – that's his redemption arc. So, I think the Army of the Dead – before we get to the questions, we have to get to those mailbag questions that I promised. But I think the Army of the Dead and the Night King will get taken care of fairly quickly in the season, and the last three or four episodes will be the end game and how everything falls into place after that. I think they lose the Battle of Winterfell, but – um, I think that the army of the dead and the night king are taken care of pretty quickly. Uh, see, I don't, I don't think, I think he's, um, he's not going to last to the last episode. I don't think so. I think he la- lasts the second to last episode though, because you have to clear King's landing, Winterfell political angle altogether. Um, and we talked about it on the previous ones that the existential threat that he represents to life itself eliminates a lot of these extraneous storylines that have been, you know, Miss Sandy Grey Worm, do you really need to see another Miss Sandy Grey Worm scene in your entire life? No. Do, you know, the, the, they make these, they make those scenes irrelevant. And I think that's what the most disappointing thing about the run times is, is if we're not going to get some of these other ones that you have neglected, over the past few seasons to tell us these other stories about these characters who we care about, but we're not care. You know, well, there's only a certain amount of time that we have left. Why were we wasting it on some of those things? Do we have to see that gratuitous, that gratuitous sex scene between Miss Andy and Grey Worm? No. 
The answer is no. It lasted so long. So long. So long. We're talking almost 15 minutes. And so um, it's that that's really what, you know, the, I hope that they can, they can do it. I just, it, you know, they have not given me any kind of confidence. And they, I don't think they've given you any confidence either. No, they haven't. But I'm being hopeful. Mm-hmm. Uh, season seven on a rewatch was tough. The first couple of episodes were great. And then they just went full speed ahead, fast forwarding through everything, time jumps, everything in the in the works there. And I still to this day have not been able to rewatch Beyond the Wall. I think it's such a terrible episode of Game of Thrones. My second uh, to last, fa- like least favorite episode. I hate that episode. The only one I like less than that episode is the Sansa rape episode for obvious reasons. But uh, Beyond the Wall to me is such a terrible, terrible episode of Game of Thrones. I, I just can't bring myself to watch it. Really wrecked season uh, seven for me and the finale once they meet in King's Landing. Yeah, it's cool to see all these characters together, but the the whole arc of going and getting a weight to show to Cersei, it just was a lot of nothing just to get a dragon in the hands of the Night King. Before we get to the questions, real quick, who tells John about his parents? Bran or Sam? Bran. Okay. Oh, but is, Sam is it in the crypts? Possibly. I think they do it as more of a, you know, Bran and Sam are exposition machines at this point, like we talked about before. They are the ones who fill in the backstory for the show watchers. They are the, that's, that's their role in this thing is, you know, and Sam's going to be also there. He's going to have to learn how to do their weapons. Gendry, you know, that you see in a MMORPG, an RPG style setup here. You know, you have your Smith in, in Gendry, you have your, you know, mage in, um, in Bran. He's the, you know, the wizard. Um, you have your, um, you have all these, you know, archetypes. You have your, you have your Wikipedia and Sam. Yes. He, he become, well, he's, you know, he's your codex. He's the one that's going to, um, and that's what the whole, seen the citadel the scenes of the citadel are about um learning how to or or teaching the audience how to you know how these things are going to be done mansplaining those things and brandon and sam are going to fulfill that together because you know valerian steel dragon glass I think they'll end up learning how to forge Valyrian steel. See, has something to do with it. I don't it, want it has, that. I don't want that. That would feel but so it, cheap. But, it, but that's, why, why would it feel cheap to have dragons? Uh, well, now? Hear, me, they, hear me out. Hear me out. The reason it would feel cheap is for thousands of years, no one can figure out how to forge Valyrian steel. And right on the cusp of battle, when death is on the line, when death is on the line, they're <laughs> able to figure out how to forge Valyrian steel with a smith who. Uh, but they also in, have dragon. They have dragons, which is what yeah, it's going to be about. I that's just, that's the dragon. Dragon fire. But do you not feel like it's a, it cheapens it a little bit? Just it, It's so convenient that they would figure it out now. It just feels a little too contrived. Well, I mean, it, it, that's that's how all these storylines, you know, just, just like with how you were going to get Danny and John together. And how you, you were going to get a dragon to the Night King. How Jay the Dragon, you, you know, you, you couldn't do it because you literally wasted enough time in the previous seasons not to do it. But you can, you know... That that storyline is is one that that is I'm not gonna I'm gonna forgive because okay. that one, well you know, for thousands of years there hasn't been dragons either. There hasn't been a dragon alive. You yeah, know, and the and the, dra- the last dragons were no bigger than the size of dogs. And do- so. mm-hmm. and, okay. and the um and I the still Valerian. feel it'd be a little cheap, but okay, you you can. But they already know how to work Valerian still. They've already shown how they're they are smiths. And Gendry was one was underneath one of them when they reforged ice, which was Valerian steel. That they knew how to they know how to work it, 
and they're very, very few masters yeah, that know how to work. Yeah, but he was an assistant smith out of... But they also didn't have a master of the Citadel who trained under Grandmaster Marwin or whatever his name was in the show that would... Uh, that his whole... His links, and, and obviously they didn't show this in the show, but in the books, Grandmaster Marwin's chain and links that he forges are all Valerian steel because they all have to do with magic and dragon magic and ancient and ancient magic like that and i think that's where in okay. the books at least that yeah. will that will come from they explained and it better again, in the books and, and absolutely it's just, just hard as a tv is a strictly tv show watcher um to see gendry coming up out of flea bottom an assistant smith all of a sudden has become the great smith to figure out valerian steel but that makes a little bit more sense we got to get to the questions really quickly as quickly as you can who holds the reach who holds dorn who holds um the tyrell stronghold of high garden. high garden i mean who are where like there's so it feels like everything is vacant right now except for the main plot places but, and that's what that's what we talked about earlier that's one of the things that those places aren't aren't manned like they should be um they're not the ones that would um that, that normally you know high garden's protected by a huge this huge massive 100,000 person army that person's you know with um Randall Tarley and all those guys who is, who's the main bannerman of the tower rails. They're all gone. Um, and the Lannisters are gone in the West. The Dornish, um, they don't have a large army army anyway, and they're very difficult to get to. I think that they're, you know, they were in at least position to before, you know, they totally botched that storyline was they were going to be the the like if the night king moves south they he, he's not going to be able to move to the land of the sun is what I, is was what I'm guessing is that somehow they would it would be hard to conquer the desert for him just like it was hard for the targaryens the targaryens never conquered dorne unless by you know until marriage they had to marry into the family to get it to happen so um that's what i think really will be you know i think that's dorne is not going to play a big part i think they they wrote that storyline off Rapid fire here because I got some more questions for myself, but going to Twitter at SNW Manbo, when Bran and the Night King have their wizard war, do you think they will both die? Possibly. I think, yes. I think Bran sacrifices himself. Do you think that the Night King and Bran fight? I don't know as much fight as as they, they you know, interact uh, via, you know, obviously he, Bran is susceptible to him. It's been branded by him. We don't know what that means in, in, in the in the aspects of the show. So I think there'll be some confrontation. I just don't know what that would entail. I would Probably think that Bran's going to war you into something at some point and fight. Uh, most likely. Most likely a dragon. The dragon that John is riding, if I had to guess. At SNW Manbo again, what are the odds? I can answer this one. They never reveal to John his heritage and let him continue being Jon Snow. Zero percent. Zero. <laughs> That's a hard zero, friend. Hard zero. Hard, hard zero. zero. At the Stephen Willis, John has to kill Bran at the end of Game of Thrones. Thoughts? That would that would nobody would rewatch this show, and they would know nobody would watch the prequel. If you made the most popular character kill his brother, who he, well who was his brother for all intents and purposes, that plays into the theory that Bran is the Night King, which you and of I course. both agree he is not. Uh, if it is, it's contrite. I will say when they recast the Night King, they made him look more like Bran. They could, but it also, you know, it, it, if they're that hackneyed, then they don't deserve, they don't deserve any, they deserve all the 
all the vitriol they get if they do that. Is he brand the builder? That would be that I would, I would that would be better. That would I would accept that one because it is it feasible? With, absolutely, it's feasible. But it also, I don't like this. Um, the universe is on a continuous loop. You know, eternal recurrence. Time is a like flat that circle. Thing. Yeah, I don't stuff. like I don't like I don't like eternal recurrence as a theme, especially when it comes to fantasy. I like a, you know, you need to have the you need to have an ending. Yeah, you don't want to have them beat the Night King in the Army of the Dead. Everything returns to this place where he's burying the Builder and like the world resets. And then the Night King and the Army of the Dead, you see them get re-resurrected like, oh, here they come again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, yeah. No. At Swayze Crazy 1, will John and Danny have a child that rules the Seven Kingdoms after they both die? We've, yes, we've already said that's a definite possibility. So you think both of them die? I think it's more likely that both of them die than both of them live, obviously. And I think that at least one of them will die. I don't think they'll kill Jon Snow twice, though. I think that Daenerys will end up biting it. But I think that it's more likely that both of them die than either of them, that both of them live. I think Danny dies in childbirth. Which is uh, which is a theme throughout the show, yes. Yeah, because Jon's going to be on the Iron Throne. Mm-hmm. At SNW Manbo, which main character other than Cersei do you believe will commit the big betrayal in season eight? We've talked about Tyrion. Do we think it's Tyrion? I hope not, but yeah, I think so. How so? Just, I think that they'll have that storyline with him betraying Daenerys because he saw Jon Snow. And what would that betrayal mean? Like what would he <sighs> do to betray them in what way? Uh, uh, the, it, see, uh, that's what's hard for me to envision because the imminent threat of the Night King, why would you be playing politics when a guy who doesn't care? There's no political motivation from the Night King. The Night King represents death itself. What does your political gamemanship mean in this? And it, that's that was what this whole that's what George R. R. Martin has been, has been struggling with, and why he won't write his books is because of that thing right there. How do you make political intrigue? interesting and 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 make us want to watch it or read it when there's this nihilistic end of the world threat none of that other stuff matters a literal nuclear bomb so i you know i hope it's not and i don't know what that betrayal would entail i I just don't know how that would fit the narrative sell you know trying to sell her to cersei or you know try to get try to get him into um as the the leader of um Trying to get himself as the Lord of the West, he the takes Lord over Castle Rock as, well, yeah, as his as, right. As, yes, as yeah, his as well his as his birthright. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's not his birthright; it's Jamie's birthright. But he would be. Yeah, but his, Jamie obviously is in the King's Guard, and he can't. Correct, and he'd yeah. be a, he'd be the Warden of the West. So he'd be, you know, he would get his wish. He would, it would it would be the ultimate thumb and his father. Yeah, I think the big turn, though it's not quite the turn people would expect or would be all that bowled over by, would be Euron turning on Cersei. And taking over the Golden Company and getting wiped the hell out—that was absolutely a possibility too. So, it isn't, but I don't think it's like you said. It's not that. How big of a shocker would that be? He's already been a turncoat on so many other ones. All right, my questions, real quickly. Where's Yara? How does she finish the Game of Thrones? Um, she ends up as Lord of the Iron Islands. Oh, okay. What What does that mean for Theon? It means Theon's probably going to die. He's a, you know, I think he's, 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 he has to die. Yeah. He's, he's completed his, um, contrition 
and his redemption arc, and I think there's not really many many places for him to go. The weakest plot point left in Game of Thrones is Theon right now. There's no, well, there's just no, just like Tyrion. There's no, yeah. there's nowhere to go with him. Safe to say, Arya and Jon's reunion is going to be the most emotional for fans of the books and show alike. Yes, I think that's pretty. You know, the needle. You know, that scene with the needle before the music in. I had forgotten, seasons. honestly, full disclosure, I had forgotten he gave her needle when I rewatched Game of Thrones season one. As I'm going to Columbia for Ole Miss, Missouri, Ole Miss punching its ticket to the NCAA tournament with a win at Missouri, while by myself watching season one of Game of Thrones, in that moment when he gives her needle and she hugs him, yeah, that's going to be, that's going to hit, hit the heart straight pretty It's going to hit home. Yeah, it's going to hit home. Yeah. Yeah. I really got to say, before we finish here, my favorite pairing in all of Game of Thrones, the show, and I think you know exactly where I'm going with this. Tywin and Arya. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a close second. Uh, you know, and uh, in the books, it's Arya and Rhys Bolton. Right. And that's another, it's another great pairing as well. But um, Charles Dance, the guy who plays so Tywin, good. is so good, man. He's so, so good. good. Uh, and, um, and Arya, you, it's obvious that they liked each other outside of, you know, and just like the Arya and the Hound. Um, that would probably both, be second, but Tywin yeah, and both, Arya. both great. And I think that the Hounds, you know, Clegane Ball has to happen too. I think that, that that's one of the reasons that I – Oh, so you're about to back. steal my next question. How do they get to Cl- okay. Clegane Ball? Uh, he becomes he becomes a white. I mean, he becomes the main white when he. That's what we were about to say. He divesting investing King's Landing in the siege allows him to take over Robert Strong. Oh boy, which is where it goes. Yeah, and I think he kills him with a flaming sword. I think he conquers his fear yes. of fire. That's where him pairing up with the brotherhoods brotherhoods without banner absolutely. Banners, that's where that makes sense because Correct. then. Uh, Thoros has already died. Beric Don Donneran is going to bite it too, saving somebody. His great arc. I think he. Res- I think he ends up resurrecting the Hound in this one, but because oh, he because he because he, he resurrects. You know, he obviously that's he, good for Stone. He Lady Stoneheart. I think he resurrects the Hound at, with fire. I think that he becomes the embodiment of the Lord of Light. Oh, the, the, yeah. So. Oh, that's chill inducing right there. That's the good stuff. We give these writers a hard time on, in our segment, The Night is Dark and Full of Spoilers, but humanizing Tywin with Arya was a brilliant masterstroke, a, a very smart change, and if they do that, that would be freaking brilliant. Brilliant if they were able to use Beric Dondonoran to resurrect the Hound to kill his brother and get Clegane Bowl. What a, oh, oh man, that just got me pumped. Jamie in the trailer is yelling to Brienne, it looks like, in the smash cut that they do, telling her to run. That would be tragic, would it not, if Brienne dies in front of him and gets raised as a weight and he has to kill her? Yeah, or the opposite, too, because she was in love with him. So, Oh, I don't I think, think Jamie's dying in the war against the dead. I just, you know, Jamie's another one of those things that his redemption arc is almost complete, and he... That's why I don't think Brand dies because I, I think Jamie has to save Brand to save himself at the end of the, at the end of this. Because yeah, that makes sense. Just don't it, kill Pod. Pod I needs think, to be yeah, ru- Pod, like I ruling. Think, like, where's his family? Where's his house from? Millen. No, I mean his his house his house was completely wiped out. And Pod was saved. I mean he's 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 a nobody. It'd be great if he like ruled the Reach or something, or was like the leader of the twins or held the twins or something. That'd be the, cool. it would be hilarious. Yeah, yeah, that'd be perfect. Will the direwolves, Nymerian ghost, fight? Yes. Not each other. Ghost but they wreck some shit. They will. I think the direwolves. I think the direwolves are confirmed. If I if I remember yes. if I, from yeah. So 
I'm almost positive that they will fight. We know and, Ghost and, will fight. Basically, the question is, Nymeria can yes, fight? Yes, Nymeria and her, and her pack will fight. Oh. And if she dies or she puts up the fight to save Arya or something, man. Yeah, Arya's not going to die, is she? Uh, you know, I've always felt that Arya Sansa will die one. But that's, you know, obviously it's changed in the from the book to the show. But I think one of the girls will die, yes. There's a theory that Sansa and Tyrion are still married, that they're going to end up ruling together. You don't buy that? No, they have no claim to the throne. They could be Lady and I mean, he could be Warden of the West. She could be Warden of the Wardeness of the North, which would be a good. It'd be, It'd awesome be a mirror because, of the War of the Roses. If they ended up together and ruled. Yes, but they don't have they don't have any claim to. The, there's no there's no claim to their throne. There's no even um, you know through conquest. There's no there's they have no claim. And it's Daenerys is and Jon's child in the scenario is alive. They will be they could be their regency council, of course, which which would actually be very good because Sansa and John, and Tyrion have had so much experience ruling and dealing with um, adversity. Why does it matter if Jorah was cured of grayscale? What purpose does that or did that serve? Uh, I think it might immunize him against some of the White Walker stuff. I think that's the only significant. I think in the book that's what they're setting up is that grayscale is somehow tied to the magic of the the fire magic of Valyria. And I don't know how that would, you know, again, uh, like the books are ever going to get finished, but I think that's one of the mysteries that needs to be solved is what grayscale represents and what curing grayscale represents. I think they'll do a shortened version of it, obviously here. Um, and that'll be some kind of immunization, you know, his get out of jail free card when it comes to avoiding becoming a white or, you know, being, having his, you know, being taken over. Does the mysterious Howlin' Reed, who was with Ned at the Tower of Joy, have a role to play? And does the moving castle, including Mira, have a role to play? No, I don't think Greywater Watch has to. I think it's too late. I think it's too late in there. There's just the so game. much in the books about Howland Reed and the mysterious mm-hmm. nature of where he lives and the role he has to play. It would be a shame if there was a big role meant to be played by Howland Reed and they don't even touch on it. I think he's going to be the one in the books, at least, that tells John who he is because he's the only one with that knowledge, unless they do give Bran that vision in the books. Um, I think he'll be the one that ends up giving John that information. Um, but in the show, there's just not enough time to introduce to the world at large, the viewers at large, all this gigantic audience that it's gained, especially in the last season. The numbers are going to be ridiculous. So I don't think they can introduce that to a bunch of non-book readers or non-guys who aren't as best as we are. I don't think they can introduce Greywater Watch in any, in any capacity. Rob's dead. Catelyn's dead. No Lady Stoneheart coming out of the dead to fight for the army of the dead or fight for the living. No Rob fighting the army of the dead. Nothing like that. No, I don't think so. Who ends I up? I think Hodor will be the like the most emotional of the, you know, of the zombies. Like when the when like the woman in, in Hardhome who saw her them all the children. I think that's that that'll be you know he'll be the one who gets the most emotion. Who ends up on the Iron Throne? Does it even matter? No, but I think it'll be John, if if one of them lives. Yeah. Will he be Will he be ruling over a uh, land of ashes? Close to it. I mean, he's going to have whoever, whomever, be it Daenerys, John, their child, which I think it's going to be one of those three, will have. And if it's the child, which I think is the highest likelihood, it will be a regency council of people who want to see the realm healed. I think that's really what the only hope that you'll see at the end of the show. Will it be a hopeful end? 
It's going to be bittersweet, be bitter, but we'll yeah, be hopeful. Yes, I think it'll be hopeful. There's too much. There, they've, they've obviously the showrunners are not, um, as you know, as talented at world building as George is, but they also have a brighter streak to their writing. It's not quite as so hardened nihilistic as George's is, and I think that really will um affect the ending. I think it'll be a hopeful but tragic. I think that you know. And Danny's parents being dead will mirror a lot of other great fantasy characters. Harry Potter, for instance, you know that you know he didn't. He was that, that was that's what you know. Really, the one with the, the no parents really affects the most. I think that's what it reflect is that you know this child represents hope, hope for the kingdom and hope for the future, but it came at a terrible cost. These showrunners are good about hitting the big moments and doing them well. So in that respect, I'm excited about Game of Thrones. It's the small plot logic problems that they have that really gives me a sinking feeling in my stomach that I'm going to go, wow, that was cool. But wait, wait, that didn't make any sense. That didn't make a lick of sense. However, I'm still excited about it. Game of Thrones coming back April 14th. The biggest revelation as we close up in the season, I mean, the season debut episode. The biggest revelation is it John's parentage to John? Is it Arya and John? What yes, do you think it'll be? I think it's, it's got to be John's parentage, and then I think the move from King's Landing to Winterfell. He's Maester Daniel. This has been the night is dark and full of spoilers. The plan for me, I'm gonna have to get with Maester Daniel about this, is to have one of these a week leading up to the season beginning, and then of course you can follow along with us every single week as the new episodes come out. There's only eight episodes or six episodes. Six episodes. There's only yep, six, six episodes before Game of Thrones is over. So just a handful of more weeks of the night is dark and full of spoilers. If Daniel's down for it, I'm down for it too. Until next time, my friend. See you later, man. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.